uh, I just haven't been able to see that same value proposition when we talk about digital rental. I don't mind paying that much, but I need to get an experience out of it, whether that's through technology, as, as you know, Rebecca, or through that communal aspect of discovering something with someone sitting close by. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content to movie theaters. And I'm joined, as always, by my magnificent co-host, Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro. You know, it's at this point, Rebecca Polly is effectively our constant and very welcome third co-host. So welcome back, Daniel and Rebecca. It's great to talk to you guys again, as always. Yeah, excited here uh, at the second half of a surprisingly unexpected year, I think is fair to say. Mm. We still have six months of this year left, guys. How fun, huh? Don't do that to me. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's actually, uh, though, does point to what we want to do here this week. You know, we're looking back at the last six months, during some of which this podcast was not in existence. So we don't have six months of history behind us, but we're looking back at the history of 2020 to kind of reorient ourselves as far as where the industry is, how we got here, what COVID has meant to all of us, and what we're hoping for in the future. This is our kind of biannual check-in, if you want to consider it that. You know, we got to begin in January where we saw in China... We saw the first cinemas close in China right as the Chinese Lunar New Year was being celebrated, which is a massive cultural celebration in China. Uh, is a big movie-going weekend, and so to have cinemas close there was a really big indicator that maybe 2020 was not going to be what we were all hoping for. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you you bring up that date, and I think it was the third week in January when we started reporting on these closures in, in China. It might have been far from a reality, I think, to a lot of folks here in the United States on what the potential impact uh, this could have had on the industry. But when the world's second largest film market closes down in effectively its most lucrative weekend of the year, you know there's uh, red alarms going off everywhere. I mean, this was something uh, not to take lightly, at least. I know there were a lot of health professionals looking at things uh, much earlier. For us in the industry, I think it's fair to say, uh, when we saw that economic impact of that Lunar New Year holiday take its toll, that's when we really started tracking what the potential impact of this could have been. Personally, and I'd been going over this with Rebecca Polly and and our colleague, uh, Sean Robbins, over at Box Office Pro, we were really bracing for worst case scenario at that juncture, something like the H1N1 epidemic in, in Mexico that happened in 2009, where you know effectively your box office is affected for 10 weeks before it goes back to normal. Uh, boy, what we'd give to have a, a 10-week disruption at this point. Yeah. I remember just in, in, in January, I was uh, in Seattle the day after they had their first confirmed case, and it was the first time I'd ever heard of coronavirus because uh, my, my my mother was doing the, oh my God, you're going to be in the city where they have coronavirus now. Oh my God, I'm so worried. And I did the typical like, oh, mom, it's fine thing. Uh, I should have listened to her, you know? <laughs> and then you went back to New York City <laughs> and where then you I were not back to worry New about York. any of this. No, not at all. But no, I mean, I, I definitely, it was it was right after Art House Convergence around the same time as, as Sundance. And it was one of those things that later on, you know, we heard, oh, people were getting sick at Sundance. There were cases at Sundance. There were cases at all these conferences and all these shows that at the time we didn't think of them as what, as what they would end up being. It was in February for me where my wife and I had the conversation that was, you know, we sat down, we were both kind of up on news coming out of different territories, you know, at that point, not just China, it was Italy, uh, you know, Northern Italy closed in mid-February, which seemed outlandish. And it was in the middle of February sometime that she and I sat, spent an evening after our baby went to sleep and we were like, 
what is is this actually going to be a thing that we need to deal with? You know, can the United States possibly submit to quarantine? You know, can Los Angeles, uh, where we live, actually close down? Do we have to pull our kid out of daycare? You know, all that sort of stuff. And started making some kinds of contingency plans, you know, kind of started being like, do we need to go to the grocery store and really stock up on stuff, which we agreed that we probably should do. And then we didn't do it for a couple of weeks and, and fortunately managed to squeeze in and get a lot of staples just as I think everybody else was realizing uh, that that was the time to go into panic buying mode. All of that very fraught, strange time, uh, and that kind of set the tone, I think, for us. February for me was definitely, uh, they're not going to cancel CinemaCon. <laughs> yeah, that was. it's interesting you bring that up, Rebecca, because that was a, a real conversation that, that was happening in mid-February. And I think the, the impetus for that, uh, the catalyst for those conversations was uh, Mobile World Conference, which is the, the largest uh, mobile phone convention uh, in the world. They canceled their 2020 event, which was intended to be in, in, in Barcelona, in mid-February. That was the first big sort of uh, conference to cancel. And we started hearing reports about you know, what would happen with the Berlin Film Festival. There were some cancellations of people attending. There were real question marks. And uh, I remember chatting with lots of folks in the industry, obviously, as we're putting together our CinemaCon edition of the magazine. And there were a lot of very real questions on... Are they going to cancel? No, there's no way big big conferences are going to get canceled. I think uh, during that time, Russ, I remember it so clearly, we're brainstorming how we wanted this podcast to look like. And I remember telling you, hey, let's look at South by Southwest in March. I think that's going to tell us the the answer if there's going to be a CinemaCon or not. Right. And then the South by cancellation, which happened relatively late, just as the CinemaCon cancellation did, was certainly a big a big deal. I also, you know, as we're talking about this, I really think that, you know, oh, you can probably hear my baby in the background. That's nice. Um, <laughs> welcome to your guest spot, Alexander Lee. It's nice to have you on the show, um, even from a different room. It's, yeah, so much of this year has been, for me personally, this can't possibly happen, can it? Question mark. And there's a real current of confronting our perceived vulnerability versus our actual vulnerability, you know? Uh, and there's a real current of confronting the degree to which all of these things that we considered to be unassailable were actually quite assailable. That's a really, I think for me personally, that's kind of why looking back at this six months is interesting because it is humbling in the very least to realize the degree to which some things are out of your control and you need to find a way to do everything that you can to protect yourself and your community uh, while also moving forward and trying to, you know, uh, retain some sort of normalcy. And this kind of like January through April was entirely that for me, I think. People and industries and 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 countries and humanity kind of scrambling for, for ways to adapt. I mean, I, I just remember... With South by when it closed, there was that initial like, oh no, we're going to do an online festival. We're going to do an online. We're going to shift online. It'll be free. It'll be great. Um, you know, every it'll it'll open things up. It'll you know, da 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 da. And then the quote unquote online festival happened, and it was I I how many how many features? It was it was like fewer than twelve. I got it like was, like four screen yeah. links. I think through that. Um, yeah, no, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't very, yeah, we, I mean, we definitely saw there kind of the, the genesis of people trying to figure out, you know, what would eventually become the virtual theatrical model, uh, you know, trying to walk that line between how much do, do this, does the consumer, what does the consumer want? What is the consumer willing to pay for it versus what's best for the industry? What's best for the filmmakers? Are filmmakers going to want to put their stuff up? on PBOD or, or, or on some of these digital platforms versus maybe holding out and waiting, waiting for theaters to open back up. And, and, and then of course, uh, in early March, I, I want to say two days before South by, uh, South by canceled no time to die. The James Bond film changed its release date. And then it was a little bit like, Oh, okay. <laughs> that was the first and big that, one. That was the first big one, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Which even, even back then it made sense because 
at that point, you're thinking, well, how is this international franchise going to figure out press junkets all over the world like these movies have to do? I mean, you have to sell, you know, watches to, to, to vodkas to all of these different promotional obligations. There's no way you can globally engineer that. So, you know, pushing it to, to November at that point sort of made sense for me when it sort of started hitting me on what the potential impact could be was actually when Universal moved uh, their titles. They first, uh, in an ominous move, they removed uh, Trolls from the schedule, I think, after pushing it forward a little bit. And F9, the ninth entry in that Fast and Furious franchise, they pushed that back by a year. And I think that in hindsight, especially right now, as everyone's sort of like scrambling to find new dates in that distribution calendar, that decision from Universal saying, you know what, let's give ourselves a year's worth of runway for our big theatrical events was fairly, fairly smart planning for a studio that among all of them was the most impacted in, in its releases by the COVID-19 pauses. And, and we're recording this a few hours after there was another big universal release date change. Candyman has been shifted uh, shifted back to October. Halloween, the Halloween Kills is now 2021. It, the, the release date changes, they just don't stop coming. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, that, uh, again, I think we're, we're in this position of each of us personally. And I think as an industry, we all have a lot of difficult questions to face. And that's been this entire process is, you know, what's for indie filmmakers, like you're talking about with filmmakers or with festivals, it's, you know, what's the most important thing? Is it getting people to see your movies? Is it getting audiences to see them theatrically? What's important for everyone in, there's a lot of, I, unfortunately, I think that the, the shakeups and the repercussions of all of this, uh, are going to continue for, a long time. Some of that will be good. Some of it will be, some of this will be incentive, I think, to reevaluate aspects of a number of aspects of this business that have been considered to be set in stone for a long time. And I think that, you know, if we can all be nimble, that theatrical can come out of this stronger. We're still trying to figure out the answers to all of these questions. And in March, of course, I mean, fr- Friday the 13th, the uh, somewhat <laughs> fortuitous date. I mean, that was, you know, like you said, Daniel, when, when when the second largest market in the world closes, you know, some big stuff's going down. But for me, it was Friday the 13th in March where it, it had that like emotional, oh, wow, that hit home. Because that was like the, the independent movie theater that I go to in New York said we're closing. You know, just that whole week, it was just this cascade of chains initially saying, okay, you know, we're going to 50% capacity. And even at that point, it was clear, like, you know, okay, everyone's going to close eventually. And, and, and within a few days that proved to be the case. And it was a, it was, it was a for, for box office pro, uh, keeping on that news. It was the craziest week I've had. Oh yeah, absolutely. It, it was one of those busy nightmare weeks where you just, it's surreal that you're reporting what you're reporting in, in real time. I think actually to, to be fair, for us, it probably started in that sort of, um, it's, it's a, it's Wednesday, March 11th. I'm at home sort of, uh, seeing these reports about the NBA canceling its season and that what Tom Hanks has it and he was in production of a movie. Oh, I, I hadn't even thought about that that you could be in production of a film and the production of a film would be paused indefinitely because of these cases. And so that completely opened, uh, I think, in my mind of saying, well, it's more than just like a temporary business pause. A lot of things are going to be impacted by this. And of course, that night, March 11th, I think it was hours after the Tom Hanks news and the um, and the NBA suspending its season is when we got that official confirmation of, of NATO officially canceling uh, CinemaCon 2020. And at that point, I think it it was quite obvious uh, for all of us that the next week would be a very busy week. And uh, to give you a sense of, of, of how those days passed, beginning on March 16th, 17th, in that week alone, uh, I think it was around St. Patrick's Day, most cinemas around the world, I believe, had closed their doors. Definitely in the United States. In the U.S., all major circuits had announced suspension of operations. And effectively, the top cinema markets around the world 
had begun this ramp down process. And for the first time in history, this industry in a unified way closed their doors for an indefinite and very scary future. And you say unified, and that's definitely the case. But at the same time, it was it was so fractured. I, I mean, I just remember those those days kind of frantically checking the Facebook pages of individual theater circuits and international markets to try to figure out what was going on. And the, just the sense of confusion back then that you didn't know who was closing down, who was still open, when they were going to close. There's been a real move over the last couple months to really come together as an industry to try to get through this and then through the reopening process as well. But, but just... I mean, I don't know, maybe that's my cynical nature coming through, but in, in the very early weeks, it felt like every man for themselves, almost <laughs> like every, just a sense of panic and no yeah. real cohesion going on. Oh, you know, and it's tough because at a certain point, there's a difference between a sort of like unified, there's a difference between cohesion and collusion, right? And that's, and that's the really tricky thing, I think, in, in any industry where you don't want to you know, overstep collaboration and those boundaries to a point where it can be perceived as, as something illegal between competing parties. And I think that that was definitely the case in, in the shutdown and the ramp down. But at the end of the day, we still had within a week's time, most screens in the U.S. going dark, where as we can, as we can report right now here in, in early July, the reopening effort has been anything uh, but uh, cohesive or, or coherent for that matter. I, I will say in March, I want to say March 11th was the last day I actually went out and like and, and did something. March 3rd was the last time I saw a movie on the big screen, which was uh, The Personal History of David Copperfield, which we actually have a feature on in our big comeback August issue. So it feels a little full circle. But that was that was March 3rd for me. What about what about you guys? Yeah, the weekend of March 7th, 8th was the last time I did anything. My wife and I went and our son went to a party on the 7th. And even at that party, it was, they had implemented no handshakes, no hugging, you know, everybody was kind of crammed together, but uh, it was eliminating any real personal contact. And it was a party that a friend of mine throws every year. He, he, he makes like 200 pounds of sausage by hand and it's uh, the Casimir Pulaski Day celebration in Chicago inspires this thing and so we we do that so we went to that I went to the movies that night I went to the Egyptian and Hollywood appropriately enough I saw two remakes of the Fritz Long film M in which an unseen killer is stalking a population and unlikely collaborators unite to track it down. <laughs> <laughs> Looking back at that now, I'm like, oh, okay. That was a uh, sort of an uh, eerily appropriate uh, last movie uh, to see in theaters. And and then, yeah, I think that it was the 11th or the 12th that, that we... Like my wife and I were already both working from home. Both of our offices had closed at that point. And it was the middle of that week before the 13th that we, that we pulled our kid out of daycare and just said like, well, okay, I guess we're like, we're home now. It, it caught us right in the middle of our production of the, uh, of the big CinemaCon issue, which is the biggest uh, magazine issue we have e each year. So at that point, I think Rebecca, myself and, and our colleague, Kevin Lally, were all had been working from home for weeks, basically in these like 18, 20 hour work days in our pajamas, just going crazy, uh, proving page after page of, uh, of magazine designs. So the last sort of social thing I got to do before the CinemaCon crunch time. And then this crisis started, was actually in late February. I went to a friend's house to see, uh, you know, the, the last big boxing match, uh, that, that, that probably will happen this year. Uh, Tyson Fury's rematch against Deontay Wilder. And that was, that must have been, what, February 22nd? What I would give to go to one of these cool sausage parties that, uh, <laughs> that, that our colleagues here get to go An to actual in sausage. movie theaters. That sounds like a, like a good date night for me. The one thing thinking about the NBA canceling the season and then the cascade of additional you know leagues that either truncated or canceled their season is... We've discussed this, I think, in passing here on the podcast, but we've talked about it a lot more offline, is the degree to which that those cancellations underlined the 
sort of promotional synergy between studio efforts and sporting events in the sense that, you know, we were talking about when we were looking at a potential trailer launch for Tenant, we were wondering if Tenant was going to stick around, talking about other potential July, August, September movie openings, and the idea that without sporting events and without in-theater promotional opportunities, the ways that studios have to promote movies to a huge audience are really drastically scaled back. Like without the NBA finals to run a big trailer drop for Tenant or another huge movie, you know, studios look at a significant reduction in their ability to get one single piece of promotion in front of audiences. And I think that that's a really significant aspect of the difficulties that are faced, even with the reopening now, if you look at the idea of Warner Brothers wants to put Wonder Woman in theaters, everybody kind of knows what Wonder Woman 1984 is, but how do they get that last like big promotional push out to people when there aren't sports to put trailer drops in front of or other similar things that bring otherwise disparate audiences all together for a single cause? And then you apply that to a film like Tenet, which, I mean, Christopher Nolan's marketing campaigns have always been mysterious. I mean, we all know what Wonder Woman 1984 is. We don't know what Tenet is, really, and, and that's and that's by design. But without the the, the, the real, really the time to put into that marketing, it's, uh, I don't envy Warner Brothers the position that they're in. No, it's, it's incredibly difficult, you know, and you think, well, the other way to get to get people to know what Tenet is, is that you do what Nolan has always done, which is that you throw, you know, six to 10 minutes of that movie on IMAX screens prior to some other release, which is effectively what they're going to do with the re-release of Inception in a couple of weeks. But, you know, even that is going to play to uh, limited audiences for reasons that we don't need to restate. That's a seismic like a small but seismic shift in the way all of this stuff works that I don't think a lot of people, I didn't think about it at first. And then as we've looked at the way the rest of this year has gone, it's become really apparent that, you know, there's this ecosystem that uh, is required for, you know, any big movie to play in the way that we're used to seeing them play. March, you definitely felt like a, you didn't have time to breathe at all. <laughs> April kind of, it, it felt a bit like an eye of the storm situation where everything had shut down. You know that things really aren't going to be reopening up, you know, in, in, in the in the immediate future. You know, just for, for us at, at box office, it became a time of looking at what is going on. You know, whether that's independent movie theaters um, trying to keep in touch with, with their consumer base on social media, virtual theatrical, and then looking at a market like South Korea, which never had the they never had the total prolonged shutdown. You know, there were shutdowns, but they weren't for, you know, they weren't for months at a time and it wasn't the entire country. So you see, a, you know, a leading chain like CJ, CGV there introducing their their contactless cinema. And, you know, it was for me, I, you know, I hesitate to apply the word optimism uh, to 2020, especially spring 2020. But it was this little spark of like, okay, we're starting to get a sense of what things could look like down the line. It looked kind of weird at that point, didn't it? I mean, Rebecca, could you go into a little bit of what that contactless cinema pilot program was that CJCGV released in South Korea? So we, we're going to actually have some some photos of it in our in our August issue, and it actually looks really cool. I mean, it basically is exactly what it sounds like. It is a theater designed towards not touching anything. You have uh, the concessions is kind of like an old school automat thing where you order, you know, digitally and then you go type in a code and the button will, you know, that the door will pop up and you'll grab your food. You don't have to, uh, you know, be handing food back and forth, be handing, handing concessions back and forth. They have these little, they said robots. I don't know. They look like robots wandering around with like directions and maps to say where the bathroom is. It looks is. like the Rocky Four robot. It looks like the Rocky Four. For and, all three Rocky Four fans listening yeah. to this, it looks exactly like the Rocky Four robot mm -hmm. taking your ticket orders. And and um, you know, speaking with CJCGV, they still 
have employees. They still have people working these theaters. It's just not that customer-facing situation, you know, which really is an extension of some of the conversations that the theatrical industry in the United States has been having for years now. Things have been trending towards automation. And, you know, what does that mean for the human employees of these change how of, of these chains how will uh, how will their roles change how uh, how will you know labor issues change within this industry and uh, you know things like that like automation like online ticketing like online f and b orders it's just seen a lot of stuff that was kind of in the works get a little bit of a kickstart the same way work from home got a big kickstart just in a more general sense and and such such features like uh digital ticketing for example uh that audiences in the united states are familiar with it through giants like fandango which is a third-party aggregator in other markets it's a mixed bag in terms of uh, how popular digital ticketing is in markets like china it's a dominant force for people to buy their tickets online in the u.s a little bit less so and actually it's a lot more folks, uh, I think, are used to buying movie tickets uh, through a third-party aggregator like Fandango than through a, a cinema's own website. And that's something that our full transparency, our parent company, uh, has been doing. It's one of their business lines. And in in talking with them through this crisis, it's one of the things they've sort of revealed as is seen uh, a big uptick in markets that have already reopened. The amount of uh, movie theater chains that are adding their own uh, digital ticketing element and selling those tickets online as opposed to physical sales is one of the first obvious changes. Uh, one of those contactless cinema features that CJCGV rolled out is this sort of like uh, concessions order through your phone. So guys, imagine having your cell phone, you order your concessions, and instead of picking it up at the at the stand, there's these sort of automat-like lockers that you go in without even saying hi or interacting with someone, you pick your, up your order and go back in. I'm very curious to see what sort of these innovations come through, which ones last and which ones don't. Uh, I don't know about you guys. I, I like that human interaction, that hospitality element when I leave my house to do something. But at this point, I'd rather have the least amount of contact possible. I'm team don't talk to people normally. So <laughs> that's where I'm coming from with that. Just the issue of reserved seating. I mean, within the last couple of years, it picked up here in the United States. It was always more of a thing in Europe and, and in the United States it it never really was. And just within the last year or two, uh, you would see these big chains like AMC and Regal kind of adopt adopt reserved seating. And now reserved seating or, or, or something similar to that is proving absolutely essential as chains reopen. And you have to know where people are going to sit because you have to know <laughs> that there's going to be enough distance between them. You don't necessarily have to know like this person's going to be in seat K10, but you, it, it, it's not just a matter of, oh, just go sit wherever you want. You, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of the innovations that were in the works being uh, accelerated in a big way. So part of that transition to, uh, to pivoting and innovating to new avenues for this industry has been the way that a number of exhibitors in the United States have embraced uh, video-on-demand home entertainment platforms. Uh, now, there's a very simplistic way of looking at these decisions and saying, oh, these, uh, these movie theater chains are no longer committed to the theatrical experience by going into the home entertainment side. But that's ignoring the role that uh, a home entertainment uh, component has had in other major markets in this industry for years now. Uh, here in the North American market uh, alone, we have uh, the leading exhibitor in Canada, Cineplex, having its own VOD platform for years, a very successful one, and innovating a lot with uh, with concepts such as uh, super tickets, where you buy a slightly more expensive ticket uh, for a film, and then you have a digital purchase included with that with that price point. In the geographic North America, uh, my compatriots over in Mexico at uh, Cinepolis, uh, the number one cinema chain in Mexico, have also had a VOD platform for years and years, where they've also had additional revenue coming in. 
before COVID-19, AMC theaters made headlines in October by being the first major exhibitor in the U.S. adopt its own VOD platform. Since then, we've had other exhibitors such as uh, Showcase, which is part of the large Viacom conglomerate, and Alamo Drafthouse also roll out uh, VOD platforms of their own, which I think is, is interesting as we sort of see, well, what role do they play? Not only that, but also concepts like the virtual theatrical model that we dedicated a whole episode to earlier in this podcast's history, where a, a distributor will have a digital platform that will have a rev share based on a digital rental of a film with uh, participating art houses. I'm very curious to see how those evolve in, in the coming months. I, for one, haven't had any experience with any transactions, either on an exhibitor VOD platform, a premium VOD platform, where uh, we have some releases from major studios uh, going through, or even a virtual theatrical model, even though we've we've uh, written and talked about these concepts uh, quite a bit here. I do have relatives that have tried it. I'm curious, have you guys done anything like that so far in your media consumption? I've done just a little bit, but for me, my my general avoidance of it is not actually avoidance. It is, uh, what's a nicer way to say, collateral damage. Um, I... I don't have a lot of time, you know, uh, and I do most of my movie watching right now, unfortunately broken up into like 20 minute chunks because I'm trying to do my job and help raise a child while my wife's job has become incredibly demanding. She works really long days right now. So like being able to sit down and say, Oh, for the next two and a half hours, I'm going to watch a movie that I pay $20 for is by and large, an option that's out of my reach for the time being. I feel pretty okay, you know, breaking up a movie that I own on disc or something on Netflix or whatever into 20 minute segments. But if I'm paying 10 to $20, which I'm willing to do, I do want to be able to sit down and, and give it my undivided attention. And the ability to do that is unfortunately super rare right now. Jeffrey Katzenberg wants to know why you haven't subscribed to Quibi. We've been picking on that guy so much. <laughs> I, I, you know what? Um, I would need several episodes of a Quibi show to explain all of the reasons that I haven't subscribed to Quibi. And I feel bad that he's one of the few like name executives that I've had like a pleasant social conversation with at CinemaCon, and I just like. <laughs> We cannot stop finding ways to, to bring Quibi into this conversation. Yeah. I've done one. There was an independent theater in um, God, I think the Roxy in San Francisco that had, uh, I don't even know if you would technically call it a, call it a, a virtual theatrical release because it, it was literally just pay $5 and log on to the Zoom call. And it was a screening of a 1960s documentary called Gay, Fran, Gay San Francisco that was filmed in the 60s of like this kind of travelogue of the queer sections of San Francisco paired with the panel afterwards. And 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 that, I really thought that was interesting that I was able to have access to that being on the like completely opposite coast. Um, and it was a really interesting thing that I never would have been able to do otherwise. That film is not easy to find. That said, you know, I paid five bucks for it. For me, kind of similar to, to what Russ says, if I'm if I'm watching something in the home, you know, my TV setup is not great. My speaker setup is not great. Even if I spent thousands of dollars on it, it wouldn't approximate to the big screen experience. And I'm not, I'm not paying 10 bucks to rent a movie and watch it on my TV or 20 bucks. I, I'm just, uh, there's so much else that's there to watch now. I mean, the other day I watched, uh, I watched, you know, Once Upon a Time in the West for the first time. Ooh, not in a TV. Uh, oh, you're breaking no, my heart. And that's, and that's what I thought. I'm like, if it were any other year, some rep cinema in New York would have put together an Ennio Morricone like series. And I would have been able to see this on the big screen for the first time. Hey, you know what? That's an amazing movie. And no matter how you see it, it's a great experience. It was great. But I like I waited for the big screen for Lawrence of Arabia, and I wish that I could have done that for this. And it's just not gonna happen. But yeah, I mean for, for independent stuff, I've I've been watching some some programming that independent cinemas have been doing. I mean, frankly, when it's when it's cheap, because you know, economic insecurity is a hallmark of 2020. 
<laughs> so that's what that is. I'm I'm afraid to, to to join in on this chorus because eventually, if we if we keep on talking about the the movie going magic uh, in, in these terms, we're going to wheel us out at the uh, at CinemaCon at one of these studio presentations to to basically deliver you know the latest franchise sequel and how important it's going to be uh, in in a in a theatrical setting. But for me, the big difference maker, and I think this ties into what Rebecca was saying about. The when South by Southwest uh, did that pivot to South by Southwest Online and how just completely unappealing it was for me, there's something about being or, or at least discovering content with an audience that works for certain films. Not not every film. I don't want to overstate it, but that sort of uh, a stage of saying like, okay, I, I was in this room and I felt this energy. And that energy can be reserved maybe to opening night or to a specific type of film that you enjoy with audiences. Uh, I, I just haven't been able to, to sort of see that same value proposition when we talk about uh, digital rental. Uh, a little bit like what Russ is saying. I don't mind paying that much, but I need to get an experience out of it, whether that's through technology, as, as you note, Rebecca, or through that communal aspect of discovering something with uh, with someone sitting close by. I mean, just as there's a theatrical experience, there's a certain energy and a certain mindset that we've all become used to um, for watching things at home. And that's a $5 mindset for me. It's something, Rebecca, that I even look back at uh, when we went to the press screening for Parasite last summer, uh, if you remember, with, with our colleague Kevin Lally, and, and I was able to, to bring my wife as a plus one. We're all sitting together in this row, seeing this for the first time together, and every twist and turn in that movie, being able to enjoy it with, uh, with my coworkers and, and, and my partner next to me, that was a big part of enjoying and having a great time watching Parasite. And I think that's one of the reasons why that film resonated and ended up playing at suburban shopping malls. Something extremely rare for any foreign film to do is that sort of experience of discovering the movie together. I can still watch it at home. Absolutely. There's no problem with that. But it was extra special, extra fun, fun for me uh, doing so with that audience. I was lucky enough to see The Invisible Man before, you know, when it was in, in the press screening before everything shut down. And I mean, I know, Russ, you, you, you've spoken to this as well. Like it, it was a really great experience to discover, you know, watching that movie. Oh, you know, oh, my God, this is this is actually good. Like this is they nailed it. This is good. This is a good movie. This doesn't suck. Um, you know, my boyfriend is like the biggest the biggest fan of Universal Monsters. He he the the original Invisible Man is literally his favorite movie of all time. And he hasn't seen the new one because he missed it on the big screen. And he's like, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to watch it like this. Kind of threaded into this conversation is the idea of obviously the experience and enjoying it with somebody else. And it's like uh, there's a few parenting newsletters that I subscribe to. Uh, one is from the New York Times. And today's subject line was one that really kind of hurt. And it was missing the partner you see 24 7. And this is a conversation that my wife and I have had a number of times where we are in the house together all day, every day. And we feel like we haven't like hung out in weeks, you know, and we have to try to make time to do that. And so some of the movie experiences that we've always enjoyed doing and some things that we would enjoy, like let's sit down and pay 10 or 20 bucks for PVOD. You know, one of us can't make time to do it. We almost never right now can make time to do it together, which, you know, I think the value proposition would be there if we could just say like, okay, for the next two hours, we're going to sit down, we're going to make a couple of drinks and we're going to enjoy, you know, the invisible man at home or whatever it is. And the, all of the new structures that are built into trying to survive this thing, have kind of pulled away that opportunity for us. And, and it's really that more than anything else, I think that, that changes, uh, the appeal of the PVOD, uh, for me. And that's why, I mean, and and it's, it's fortune telling and we can't say, but I, you know, I really do wonder the longevity that the PVOD will have. I know we've discussed this, you know, we've discussed this on the podcast prior, but it, it definitely feels like a situation. It, it feels like a stopgap. I've never spoken to anyone who's enthusiastic 
about uh, PVD in the same way that they are about going to the theaters, with the exception of when Cats came out on DVD. A friend did bully me into spending <laughs> 20 bucks on that one. Um, <laughs> that cultural cornerstone of 2020, early 2020, the Cats experience. No, it's funny you bring that up, Rebecca. I think it's there's habits we have during this. Uh, and, and as Russ notes, as you're mentioning, you know, let's make a couple of drinks and, and watch something uh, t- together. I just spent like 40 bucks on a, a cocktail kit that this company is going to mail me so I can make, you know, fancy cocktails at home that, you know, it, it's not something I, I, I'm particularly fond of. It's not something I'm, I'm a huge fan of, but I'm trying to sort of keep these like at home date nights relevant and interesting and, and, and fresh and you go out of your way to sort of bring in factors and maybe pvod and its success we've talked about that it, it could have that certain situational success in a way that the second i can buy a cocktail outside i'll probably do so and not get it mailed to my door i mean it's the same we, we've seen theaters adopting you know curbside concessions curbside popcorn and they've had great success with that i, I mean i can't imagine I mean, theaters selling popcorn curbside after this is all over. I mean, maybe, maybe some of them will. It's something that, you know, there are chains that have experimented with, you know, selling pizza. We didn't get that press release on, on, you know, mid April, how it was a record day for popcorn uh, to go sales uh, from the theatrical industry. You know, it's important to sort of remind yourself how this situation brings some mini quote unquote records um, and mini trends that, as we know, might not have a big loss. I mean, not for nothing, Daniel. And I mean, we're both in New York. No one's doing that here that I know of. No one has cars here that I know of. Like, I know a couple people. Yeah, we don't I'm like, have. I'm like 14 miles from a movie theater. Yeah, I think that'd be difficult. <laughs> we don't have that car culture. I mean, that same way there's a there's a drive in cinema up in up in Brooklyn. I don't have a car. <laughs> How am I getting there? No, it's kind of. Yeah. It's like going through a drive-through window walking. I learned in college the hard way. They will not serve you. They will now. Actually, my my, my wife did that a couple of weeks ago. She there's a <laughs> did she get? She did. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Um. She. America's changing. It is. But it's interesting to me. Just the the whole industry has just gotten so much more regional. You know. I mean, the whole world. I. You know, how many times have you been outside your neighborhood? In the past four months. Oh, I, I live in, uh, seriously, I, I've been on like a 10 block radius. I think if you don't have a car in, in such these major cities, I, I think that's a, that's a very accurate thing. And it's a tricky thing as, as we look further down down the, the pipe, pipeline of 2020 with such a sort of regional neighborhood-based reality for most of us living in this country, how do you plan a wide release? Russ, you already mentioned the difficulty in marketing a wide release when you don't have big TV events uh, like the NBA playoffs where you can dedicate some of that ad spend. And obviously in June, we had that uh, the first of several date pushes that sort of pushed the reopening effort for U.S. cinemas in that infamous Friday night news dump that I think we all remember working through where Warner Brothers makes the announcement that it will finally be pushing Tenet from that mid-July release date for the first time. And pushing it two weeks and then later pushing it another two weeks. I mean, that that's honestly how, how it feels like it's going to be, not specifically with moving movies back two weeks at a time, but just to sort of, you know, incrementalism going forward. You know, a movie will appear in one market and then another. Things are going to be much more spread out, much less concentrated on opening weekends. You know, maybe much more reliant on on word of mouth. I think, I mean, I hesitate to, you know, say that's a good thing with anything about this because, uh, you know, none of it's good. But there has been a, a definite concentration over the last just a few handful of years, like if you don't make, uh, you know, break records and make a ton of movie and opening weekend, then, you know, screw you, your movie's a failure. <laughs> and uh, I feel like we could maybe be going in the opposite direction now where everything's a bit, a, a bit more gradual because everything is so fractured and, and numbers do change from day to day, from market to market. And there's really no way to keep it cohesive, at least in the United States. And redefine what success looks like, right? I think that's going to be an important uh, sort of thing that we have to keep in mind. It's something uh, Catherine Taft, the 
head of distribution at, at Disney mentioned it's in Europe. We really have to reassess what success is going to be theatrically for the foreseeable future as we recover from this crisis. For example, I think one of the big stories in the box office from last year, I mentioned it briefly, is the 50 million domestic take that, that Parasite did in its run to win Best Picture at the Academy Awards. That's not Walt Disney numbers, but that's a massive amount of money for a film that would have never could have never imagined getting to those heights, I think, in a market like the United States. I think it's a good opportunity to, as Rebecca says, recalibrate those expectations and sort of emphasize the success stories that aren't necessarily $200, $300 million mega hits. At the same time, it's tough with, with traditional theatrical, you know, over the last few months, either non-existent in the United States or, or very, very limited. We, we've been seeing other ways that studios have been getting money for their releases, PDOD and, and virtual theatrical, which we mentioned previously, but also drive-ins. And an issue that we're seeing is how do you measure financial success for that at all when reporting is not accurate, reporting is spotty, reporting is not consistent from market to market, from studio to studio. Are studios reporting drive-in numbers consistently or are they not? We know that VOD providers, you know, whether it's Netflix or Amazon or a studio like Universal with Trolls World Tour, they release their VOD numbers sometimes. Sometimes they choose not to. Maybe they choose to when it looks good and they choose not to when, when it doesn't. Uh, you know, I, I really agree. We have to recalibrate what success looks like for movies, you know, in terms of box office, in terms of, of finances. But, uh, you know, I really do think that there's going to have to be a behind the scenes, you know, reassessment of the strategies that we use to do that, because especially with VOD right now, the reporting is just it's not there. It's not where it needs to be to have a consistent, accurate picture of what's going on with these films. Well, and with something like Trolls World Tour, you know, you can say, or or The Invisible Man or anything on PVOD, you can at least report sales or rentals, right? Netflix makes it a lot more murky where they're like, oh, you know, this, you know, whatever title got this, you know, hundreds of millions of plays, but what constitutes a play exactly? Right. They changed it to like, if you watched it for, for two minutes or something, it right. was a play. Which is absurd, so- you know? Especially when you take into account that that the basic that the default UI for Netflix auto plays stuff if you hover on it long enough, so it's like, well, does that count as a play? Is that enough? And it's yeah, I agree that the all aspects of the streaming ecosystem need to be a lot more transparent when it comes to data reporting. Of course, it's in the industry in the interest of some of these companies not to be transparent with their reporting. And I, I don't know that this situation that COVID is actually going to improve things on that front. I, I mean, that was where I was coming from. I mean, I, in March, I was like, okay, well, maybe VOD reporting, maybe there will be some, some the industry will come together and there will be someone who will take the lead here on, on, on um, you know, on ensuring that. VOD can be represented accurately. And uh, that that was real naive. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think the the conversation as we sort of shift to reporting on this industry, but at the same time, being big movie fans and and contributing in, in our own little minimal way to part of the critical conversation around cinema, we are all active in either critic groups or submitting our respective top 10 lists to different uh, publications. That brings up uh, a difficult sort of question as we look at the paltry number of movies I think we've all seen so far in 2020. What do we have as our best of 2020 halfway through the year? I can say personally, I've only seen three new releases this year, and two of them I saw during the awards cycle last fall. How about you guys? How many movies have you seen so far? Do you have any that sort of uh, stand out in the first half of the year? I don't know about how many I've seen. And now for me, this year was a difficult year even before COVID because my car was totaled in January uh, through no fault of my own, fortunately, which constrained my ability to get out to movies. And then we had a big family health crisis uh, in February, which basically dominated that month for me. So I was already pretty far out of the loop 
for 2020, even before COVID began. I have three movies that stand out as big favorites so far. And like you, they're all movies that were part of the festival or the awards scene in late 2019, which are Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which I think is a magnificent movie, absolutely beautiful, uh, powerful in a variety of different ways, which I think it had its official kind of you know, wider release uh, around Valentine's Day this year. So I'll count it. Amazon's The Vast of Night, which is this really wonderful. So it's almost like a twilight. Zone. I mean, it's not almost like a twilight zone episode. It's explicitly structured as sort of an homage to the twilight zone, but it's a, a small movie made by a first time filmmaker with virtually no resources and is wildly successful. I think by any measure, but certainly looking at the way it was produced, which was fully bootstrapped, you know, skinnier teeth, kind of like, grabbing everything you can. And it's a very cool movie about a couple of uh, high school kids who uh, encounter aliens, for lack of a better word, in their small town in the 50s. Or is it the 60s? Anyway, regardless, great movie. And then The Color Out of Space, which is uh, you know an H.P. Lovecraft story adapted also to sort of a you know an independent, bizarre, very colorful and weird movie uh, starring Nicolas Cage and a number of other other people. And all of those stand out as some movies that I really like this year. But they're they're all things that you could have seen at festivals or in some other scenarios uh, in late 2019. I have to I have to amend something. I'm I'm looking through what I've seen this year. I actually did rent something on Alamo VOD on Alamo at home. I rented uh, Legend of the Stardust Brothers, uh, a Japanese musical from the '80s, a rock musical. So oh, cool! That was really good. Yeah, in terms of, in terms of new releases that I've seen, um, that I've seen this year, uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire uh, and Vast Vast of Night. I have to to second both of those. They're both really excellent films. I, I think. Um, you know, Vast of Night with its kind of retro sci-fi feel, the obvious like connection is Stranger Things. I think it's better than Stranger Things. <laughs> I like it much better, even though Stranger Things is very fun. I, I saw uh, A Promising Young Woman. I, I, I managed to see um, it was going to come out I forget, April or May, and then it got, uh, you know, it got taken off the schedule. But that's one. Um, I mean, it's just just in terms of the color and the design, it's, it's, a, it's a really striking looking film. And I, I would be disappointed if it ends up going on on VOD because I, I do think it deserves that big screen experience. Yeah, I, I watched recently um, Relic, which IFC uh, IFC oh. Midnight is putting out on. Uh, it's on the drive-in circuit uh, now. Oh and that yeah, one that movie enjoyed. is so good. I wish I'd seen it on the big screen, <laughs> but I, it is. Same. You can still rent a car, Rebecca. Uh, or, you know, if, if we find a way to walk yeah. to one. It's like, hey, Lyft driver, do you want to go see this horror movie? <laughs> Ooh, that's uh, going to be an expensive But if you, if you do really live in your drive-in, it is, re- yeah, it's, um, yeah, that, that one is, is definitely, it, 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 it's like the marketing is comparing it to the Babadook and, and, it, and it has that kind of like horror mixed with, Actually, you know, saying it's horror mixed with it's actually saying something. That's not, that's like most horror. So <laughs> I don't want to, that's most horror. Yeah. I mean, the, it, it concerns like three generations in one family, but it's very, it's very intimate and it builds, oh man, the last act of that movie just, obviously I'm not going to reveal anything, but it just is, it ends very powerfully. Like I liked the first half of that movie and then the back half of Relic just floored me. I thought it was absolutely terrific. I was getting some uh, House of, well, what's the, what's the, what's the Mark Danielewski book? House of. Oh, House of Leaves. I was getting some House of Leaves vibes. I've never actually read that book. I know of it, uh, but I've never read it. So uh, yeah, interesting. That's neat. And continuing these genre vibes, I'd say for me, of, of the three that I've seen so far, the only one that I that I think is is very much worth seeing is the Brazilian film uh, Bacurau that we spoke about a couple of months back when it premiered through the virtual theatrical model through Kino Lorber, which I believe should still be available uh, I think it through is, yeah. their Kino Now website. So if you can, check out the film. Um, we've spoken uh, in different occasions of our admiration for someone like John Carpenter in being able to make movies that are smarter than they should be and really entertain you while, while working within not the confines of genre, but really expanding the scope of what genre can do in terms of social commentary. Uh, and 
for me, Baccarat is a perfect John Carpenter movie set and made uh, in Latin America. I grew up in a number of countries in Latin America. Uh, three, uh, two of them are, along with the United States, uh, very deep into this COVID-19 crisis. Brazil uh, and Mexico, uh, both countries I, I spend time living in and both really struggling. On the Brazil side, if you look at everything that's happening in, in 2020, this protest movement around the death of George Floyd uh, that happened not only in the United States, but really across the world in a number of different countries, it sort of struck a nerve that a lot of these tensions aren't specific uh, to the United States. And I think that that couldn't be truer than a country like Brazil, where uh, this sort of racial violence and impunity happens way too often. And a movie like Bacurau, I think, is a a wonderful sort of commentary uh, while being a very fun movie on the state of where Brazil is is today. It, it's a fascinating movie where if you see the sort of two big Brazilian films that have gotten a lot of attention over the last year, this one and the, docu- and the documentary, The Edge of Democracy, which I believe I believe that was either shortlisted or nominated. That was nominated. For, yep. It was nominated. I, I personally thought The Edge of Democracy was a little bit too... Um, too blunt, I mean, too, a little bit too direct. And, and, and I understand why it would be. It, it's really a documentary that, that it's trying to take a political reality that's, that's very fragmented, fractured, and sort of uh, expose it to the rest of the world. I was able to connect uh, spiritually with the situation that a lot of my personal friends are going through in, in Brazil through a movie like Bacurau uh, a lot better than I did through a documentary like The Edge of Democracy. So I think in the context of everything we've seen in 2020, from the access to medicine to the role that people of color are having in, in, in being afflicted with this crisis more, to the role that poverty has in, in, in the access to, to things and what, and what privilege can do in terms of impunity and, and, and violence. Bacurau, I think, is one of the uh, a few masterpieces that I can just rattle out in a short list of the last 20 years uh, in terms of being very accessible from a genre and popular cinema perspective. In terms of Mexican cinema, I will say this is a film that I, I have caught up on during the quarantine and I really wish I'd seen it on the big screen. I watched my first Santo movie. Uh, that <laughs> oh, is Santo, Santo oh the Luchador. So Santo the Luchador. And this is uh, Santo and Blue Demon versus the Monsters. So you, you don't have, um, you know, you don't have that, that cultural commentary uh, necessarily, you don't have. Um, oh, you do? I, I think you do. There's, a, there's another podcast we can. He's but, our James Bond. Santo means a lot to you us. Do, you you do have much. a luchador punching Dracula in the face. Oh, and like v- vampire women, uh, mummies. I mean, like rival soccer fans at some point. Uh, you know, it's uh, you know he's a, he's a national treasure. Uh, we do love our Santo. Those are wonderful movies. I can't believe I'd never seen a Santo. Have you have you seen a Santo and Blue, Blue Demon versus the monsters, Russ? He he fights yeah. their monsters and he fights them. He wrestles them to be specific. I. I had a have a close friend who grew up in Mexicali and um was a big film fan and in the 90s he and I kind of traded movies a lot and he did me the favor of introduce introducing me to many of the Santo movies uh and I I thank him for that. We Santo um I I think I speak for all of us here at the box office podcast where we say uh we say, thank you. Thank <laughs> exactly. you. Thank you Santo. <laughs> thank you Santo. I'm still looking forward, Rebecca, to when Santo can come back with or without Blue Demon and defeat COVID-19 and save the world once again. Uh, We can only hope, or at least that seems to be a more realistic uh, approach to to tackling this than what we've seen uh, lately. Hey, you know know what Santo does? What? Wears a mask. He actually wears uh, his mask. If there's one movie where, where someone finally takes his mask off, I need to reveal he's wearing a second mask underneath the mask. Yay, Santo. We love him. Everyone be like Santo. The real Santo is inside us all along. <laughs> there's, I think, still a lot to learn from what we've gone through in 2020 already. And as we've said, there are a lot of things here that uh, we personally and as an industry will be grappling with uh, into the near future. But we are optimistic about 
the back half of this year and you know we'll we'll all be optimistic about 2021 at this point so that being the case please join us again next week where we will continue to discuss the landscape in business at the box office and uh, see where we are going as we hopefully head towards a resolution to the covid crisis at some point in the future this is the box office podcast thank you for listening uh thank you to daniel and rebecca who did a lot of the legwork to put this episode together uh with an extensive outline which we just kind of trampled all over but you know that's that's sometimes what we got to do the box office podcast is produced by caitlin kehoe and record edit we'll be back next week take care